monitoring a Kubernetes cluster allows operators to track the resource utilization of the containers within that cluster. In today's episode, Ilan Rabinovich joins the show to explore the different options for setting up monitoring and some common design patterns around Kubernetes logging and metrics gathering. Ilan is the VP of Product and Community at Datadog. Earlier in his career, Ilan spent much of his time working with Linux and taking part in the Linux community. We discussed the similarities and differences between the evolution of Linux and that of Kubernetes. In previous episodes, we've explored some common open-source solutions for monitoring Kubernetes, including Prometheus and the EFK stack, that's Elasticsearch Fluent D Kibana. And since Ilan works at Datadog, we explored how hosted solutions compare to self-managed monitoring. We also talked about how to assess different hosted solutions, such as those from a large cloud provider like AWS, versus vendors that are specifically focused on monitoring. Full disclosure, Datadog is a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Ilan Rabinovich, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me. You've had a variety of operational roles in the past. You've spent a ton of time with Linux, and the main focus of the conversation today is going to be Kubernetes and specifically monitoring Kubernetes. But given your experience in the Linux community, how does the Kubernetes world and the growth of Kubernetes compare to those early Linux days? So I think containers in general and, and Kubernetes specifically have, have seen have been seeing a ton of growth in the last couple of years. We publish a, a Docker adoption study every year at Datadog where we, we're just seeing it's in some cases 5xing year over year you know, growth on containers. And so I think, you know, Kubernetes is, is sort of tied at the hip with containerization. And so we see a ton of growth there. I think it took, you know, it took a while for the world to jump on the open source bandwagon where now it's by, you know, open by default. And I think that's helped quite a bit. Uh, I think the cloud ecosystem growing at the rate that it is has also helped quite a bit. But I would say, uh, you know, containers and Kubernetes are probably, I would, I would say are probably growing at a faster clip than Linux was at this age. It could, it could just be a, that could be a byproduct of the technology or it could just be a byproduct of the volume of developers that have increased in that time span. Yeah, I think it's a bit of both, right? You have the the number of developers has increased significantly, of course. The number of folks that are using open source platforms in general has increased as well. Like the the it used to be a you know it used it used to be some challenges and sometimes bringing into certain organizations. These days, I don't think you can find any organization that's not using some amount of open source. So that's that helps as well. I think the the speed at which folks are trying to develop and deploy to the cloud. And just the sheer number of systems that we're all managing now has also forced us to, to, t- to take a look at new tooling and adopt it quickly when it helps us manage at scale. So You were witness to the container orchestration wars. I was covering this topic pretty closely. You also saw the evolution around virtualization that happened before these wars. You saw AWS get started. You saw OpenStack. You probably saw... VMware, VMware's rise. Do you have any broad takeaways from watching 
all of this virtualization technology come of age and quickly deprecate other pieces of technology and just all the churn? Yeah, I mean, I think the short story is everything old is new again, right? We were all time. Sh- well, maybe maybe I wasn't. It's before my days in technology, but at some point, everybody was time sharing on uh, on large, you know, large mainframes or, or shared computing platforms, and uh, we moved towards more dedicated things. You know, I went, at the start of my Towards the beginning of my career, there was started, you know, VMware started showing up everywhere as a way to save money. We'll just, we'll run. Don't worry. We don't need 10 computers. We'll just run them all, all on one and it'll be fine. Uh, that usually tended to be an attempt at cost savings, although I think usually a, a poorly, uh, usually a poorly thought one. Not that anything was bad with virtualization, just that, again, that idea that you're going to make, take the workloads of 10 machines and shove it onto like one equally sized machine and assume it's, assume it's going to be the same was probably a mistake. <laughs> And then over the years, you know, we saw Zen take, you know, Zen supplant that. And, you know, since then, and, you know, containerizations like technologies like OpenVZ started off. But, you know, I'd say, like I said, everything old is new again. And things we sort of seem to run in circles. It's just always in a, t- the, the goal always just seems to be the same. Let's run, let, let's, let's get work done faster and more efficiently. We, we think it's pretty safe to assume that containers probably have a, an interesting, we'll, we'll have some sort of a shelf life here as well. And we'll see something new come along in, in, in the next 10 years that, that, that will supplant them or at least take some of the tension away again, or at least maybe not the, maybe different than the containers we see today, maybe some evolution of them. I would say the other thing I would, you know, OpenStack, I would say is interesting is we're, we're diving into, as we're, if we look at that specifically, was just that every industry seems to grow and shrink. Like and that's OpenStack is exciting. Uh, I think though, as most more folks and more, more and more folks are focusing on public cloud or utility computing type situations, they're realizing they don't necessarily need to run. They don't necessarily have the expertise to run these types of things, like to, to run these types of systems in house. And so they look at they look at organizations like Amazon or Google or Azure or any other number of organizations out there. And so where I see where I see OpenStack focused these days is on the on the providers that need to run it you know, need to run it for their own customers or for very large organizations, whether it be telcos or large, you know, many, 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 many tens of, tens of thousands of node environments. And, you know, I don't know, we'll see. I'm curious to see how, how the, what the dance between OpenStack and Kubernetes continues to look like. Not to go down a rabbit hole, but OpenStack, that's, I think the ancestry there is that it was either pioneered or shepherded by Rackspace and some other companies that have a giant amount of infrastructure and the infrastructure is so tightly coupled with what they do that they would not move to the cloud in any time in well, the foreseeable they future. They are a cloud. They are a cloud, right. right? I mean, if you think about the providers that you're talking about there, they are they they are the cloud. <laughs> right. And and so and but OpenStack is is for managing lower level infrastructure rather than I mean, does it does it compete with Kubernetes, or it has some sort of Venn diagram overlap I think with it? There's a, there's a Venn diagram overlap. When I when I chat with folks, I hear sort of one or two stories. One is, well, of course, you know, something needs to manage the underlying infrastructure, or I'm an IS, you know, infrastructure is a service provider, and I need I'm offering that up to my customers, and they in turn run Kubernetes on top of that. I think there was a use case in which some organizations maybe were. Diving down that path, you know, diving into OpenStack, diving into infrastructure management at a scale that they probably didn't need it at, and in those situations, it's possible that that abstraction layer may not may not necessarily be be useful anymore. They can, you know, working with, you know, Kubernetes directly on the host rather than offering everybody the opportunity to spin up VMs on which they might in turn run Kubernetes. Maybe that's uh, maybe that meets their needs now. What are the pros and cons of that model? Like, I don't know if you're an expert in that, but the version of running Kubernetes on top of a bunch of VMs versus running Kubernetes just on bare metal instances. 
I mean, I think there's there's a bootstrapping problem that you know nobody likes to talk about, which is whether it's OpenStack or something else. You still got to get the software on the machine. You still got to provision them. So you're still, I don't know, whether you're using some form of pixie booting still or something else, right? You still got to get the, the the bits onto the machine when it gets to you from from Dell or HP or you know one of the open compute vendors, right? So whether it's for OpenStack or for Kubernetes, like that's that management layer is important. What I'm finding when when I talk to when I talk to some of our larger customers that are you know that that may still be using uh, using that are still you know running their their environments in their own data center or have a very large data center of their own, they you know they have lots of teams doing lots of different things. It's not just Kubernetes, and so by offering them you know by offering up a a common API on which you can provision provision VMs for your own needs, then, you know, that, that makes it, that makes it simple for the infrastructure team to then in turn, you know, support support a large swath of folks. In terms of why you would want to run it directly, I mean, if, if you don't need a virtualization hit, why take a virtualization hit? Yeah, fair enough. Kubernetes effect on competition between cloud providers has been exciting to watch. And in my coverage of this Initially, I walked in thinking, okay, Kubernetes is a way for people to avoid lock-in and be able to migrate from one cloud provider to another. And that may be true, but it seems like in reality, what is happening is people are spinning up clusters of Kubernetes on multiple cloud providers. Are you seeing that same trend? Are you seeing people migrate from one cloud to another? Or are you seeing more likely people are just standing up Kubernetes on both clouds and using it as a kind of common runtime to interface with whatever cloud-specific services they want on that particular cloud? Yeah. I mean, we have when we, when we talk to our customers, they're, they're, they fall into both of those camps, which is they... I guess, or all three, which is they may be they may be looking to move between one cloud provider and another, and Kubernetes is offering them a common way in which to to think about their their application their application deployments and their compute scheduling across those providers. There's others that are trying to do the multi cloud thing, as you mentioned, which is which is which is great. Not everybody helps, you know, definitely helps to to mitigate some risk by being in multiple places, whether it be where there be a negotiation risk or a technology risk or wanting to just be more geodiverse in your deployment, even business requirements. Sometimes you are, in, you know, you find yourself in, in situations where contractually you have to be in one, you know, in one provider or another. But I think at the end of the day, it's not about, it's really not about helping people move between cloud providers. It's about offering, you know, offering a, a simpler and more robust way to schedule your, your compute resources. And the, the fact that it's letting folks move around between them, that's, it's, it's helpful. But I don't think that that's the primary purpose for, for for most folks moving to Kubernetes, right? If you're super invested in Amazon or you're super invested in your own data center, it's nice to have an out. But you've already built up a bunch of competency there. You're likely not just gonna. It's not. It's not likely not just like let, let me let me containerize all the things and we're gonna move elsewhere, right? You still have you know if you have a ton of if you have a ton of data in S3, the data gravity of moving things out of S3 is 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 quite high, right? Especially if you're especially that the the volumes that that many of our customers have right there's a great story in wired uh, from about a year ago from Dropbox about their move from from Amazon to their own data centers and the amount of effort and time it took them to orchestrate and and just transfer all of the data 
that we all that we all take for granted and stored in there in there in this nebulous cloud thing that they call Dropbox out of S3 and out of EC2 and onto their own systems. Like that was that was a lot of work, and I I don't you know I don't have a ton of inside knowledge there. I mean I, I I'm sure there's a great show there for you to do in the future about that whole uh, that whole project, but in the past actually. Oh, sorry. I guess t- turns out when there's a show every day, it's hard to keep up. Uh, but, exactly. but yeah, I mean, how much of that work was about like standardizing APIs, and how much of it was just like the pipes only move so fast. <laughs> so totally. Yeah, that was a great case study in uh, infrastructure. We actually have a show airing this week with Tammy, who was SR, who was the lead of SRE, I think, on that project. And so uh, SRE, you can imagine SRE on a project where you're building your own S3-like infrastructure had some <laughs> had some interesting tales to tell. Yeah, that, I'm sure that'll be fun. I, I, I know she's also doing quite a bit of, of, of interesting things with chaos engineering these days, so I'll, I'm looking forward to that show. That's right. And she talked about why to do chaos engineering even in the context of a massive data migration. So I don't, it's promising for the idea of chaos engineering. If you're supposed to do it, then you're probably supposed to do it all the time. So let's get into monitoring. Today, we're going to talk about how to observe and monitor Kubernetes. But to get there, I think we should first talk about how people monitored raw Docker infrastructure because Kubernetes has been around for a bit shorter period of time than Docker, and Kubernetes is managing Docker instances for uh, most most people. How did people monitor raw Docker infrastructure, or how do they if they have not moved to Kubernetes yet? So I think it, it depends on your environment. You know, some folks are they're using some some folks aren't aren't using containers in, in the same in the dynamic way that you know that you might under Kubernetes or another scheduler, right? Just like folks had uh, at some point were sort of lifting and shifting their work into the cloud. Like, oh, I don't, you know, you're like you're where they're not necessarily thinking about these things may go away. It's just like I, I don't want to run VMware anymore, or I don't want to run my Zen hosts anymore. Let me just go drop this on on AWS. That's it'll make it their problem. Folks have taken, you know, early early Docker users were, you know, in some cases doing the same. Whether it might be just, you know, using Ansible or some other tooling to just, you know. Docker run a container on their machine, in which case things don't things don't change too much for you monitoring wise, right? If it's static, the tools that you've had in the past likely still work for you. You know, things that you might want to get out of Docker while you're still there are, you know, the Docker socket uh, offers a wealth of, of metrics via stats API that they offer there. And you want to you want to get that to be able to get some of your get, get details on all the different resources that your that your individual containers are using, whether it be compute or memory resources or, or, or just any of the under other underlying raw resources. The thing I'd say to everybody that's whether you're thinking about Docker in that sort of a static environment or a very dynamic environment like Kubernetes, where we see where we see containers churning all the time is, you know, don't forget to focus on your application. Everybody, a lot of times when we start to dig into monitoring, you know, everybody, the, the first reaction is, well, let me look at, let me look at all the resources on the machine. Let me look at disk. Let me look at memory. Let me look at CPU. Let me look at how much throttling I'm seeing on those containers, things like that. All of that's really important. But at the end of the day, you know, uh, people are probably tired of hearing me say this, but, you know, nobody ever calls you up in the middle of the night to say, hey, the website's running fine. All those orders are processing. We're good. But the CPU is a little high. Could I get a refund? Like that just doesn't come up. And so what you really want to focus on is your actual application. And that application could be, 
you know, the technology that you happen to be deploying there, whether it's a data store or, you know, uh, like Redis or MySQL or Postgres or something else. And you want to just see, you know, the, the what you're interested in are things like the, the query times from, from those, uh, you know, from those data stores and the throughput that they're doing and how, how are they performing for their end customers. Or it could be your actual web application, in which case you want to look at, you know, your 500s and your 200s and just make sure that like your actual application is responding the way the way you're responding in a way that your customers are going to be happy with and they're going to keep paying you. And those could be internal customers or or external customers. Were there aspects of monitoring that were difficult in a scenario where there was no container orchestrator in the pre-Kubernetes world where people just had these Docker containers? There, I mean, there's always aspects of the aspect of monitoring that became that became difficult with containers is very similar to what was difficult with, you know, with, with VMs in the cloud when you were doing sort of auto scaling groups. We've just sort of turned it up to, I guess, with in non-orchestrated, you know, world, we, we, we turned it up, you know, maybe to five. Once you get to orchestration, you turn it, turn it up to 11, as they say, and we were, were, things are just moving around all the time. I think there's what, what folks started to realize as they moved there is that, you know, maybe some of their, is that they really couldn't use monitoring that relied on static static configuration files, monitoring tools that relied on static configuration files to, to track where things were. Like it doesn't matter how fast your your chef how tight your chef run loops are and like how quickly you're converging if you're you know if you've got it what on a five minute you know converge loop, like that's great. You might have whatever was whatever you were using to deploy your containers very quickly, whether it was static in the way you're discussing or Kubernetes later, right? Like it's it's moving faster than your monitoring system and that's that's gonna be a problem. So engineering teams, they're moving to Kubernetes, and we've covered this in previous episodes. When people move on to Kubernetes, they're going to have some existing monitoring infrastructure in place. Once they add Kubernetes, are there new things that need to be monitored? I think similar to the conversations we had earlier, there's there's all kinds of things that need to be monitored about about kubernetes itself whether it be the the control plane uh, or the you know the api server or the kubelets on each of the nodes and so you want to you want to be able to pull all that all that data in what what becomes interesting is how to tie is, is is again trying to monitor your application as it as it moves around like that and there's all kinds of different as kubernetes starts to move it around for you and there's all kinds of interesting approaches you know there's you can whether you're using Datadog and, and and doing that, or you could, there's a couple of approaches where you can, you know, put some of your monitoring tooling in a sidecar next to, you know, next to your applications on Kubernetes. There's, you know, pull-based approaches with things like Prometheus. The gist is, you know, you want to make sure that your tools can keep up with you as your, as your workloads are shifting underneath your feet. And that's, you know, that's by design, right? In, in another, in, in the static environment of our data centers of, of old, where you, you know, you started on your first day and they assigned you a, you know, they assigned you a server and you said like, you know, there are many like it, but this one's mine. I'll keep it running for my time here at, you know, at whatever company you're at. You know, it was okay to, to sort of, to set up your monitoring and you know what normal was and it would alert you when something was different. When normal is now, the VM is changing every five minutes because of auto scaling groups at your cloud provider and the container is changing even faster than that because of, you know, Kubernetes scheduling or your other scheduler moving things, you know, on your behalf. You're going to want to, normal changes all the time. So you're going to want to be able to figure out how to do that in in some sort of programmatic or algorithmic way, figure out where, where things should be, make determine what your service health is and, and, and sort of monitor it from that perspective. Being able to monitor, I mean, I guess the other things I'd look at in, in the world of Kubernetes are not just, you know, now not just individual pods, but rather like your service as a whole or your, your deployment as a whole and seeing, seeing, seeing where they're at. Are there enough replicas that you, or do the replicas match what you expected to schedule, you know, things of that nature. Talking about what we're going to monitor 
you're always monitoring resource usage metrics like CPU or memory usage. What are the other metrics that you're going to want to be looking at across your cluster? I think you're going to want you're going to want to look at those metrics that you mentioned and start to to take a look at how you're how if you're running the Kubernetes cluster, you're going to want to look at how efficient your you know your users are are taking advantage of, of the resources that you're providing them. So you don't want to be able to look at that and break that down by by application or by by service or by pod and see kind of where 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 your waste is. In terms of the you know, there's you know there's other resource metrics, of course, like you know storage and network, et cetera. But I think if you're if you're a Kubernetes cluster administrator, what you should be thinking about is uh, the service that you provide your customers, which is the schedule, your, which, which are likely internal customers if you're if you're if you're providing it to you know at a company, and you're going to want to look at you know your your work metrics there, which is you know what you do there as a the, the service that you're providing your organization is the schedule of compute. So how many of those, how many failures are you seeing as folks try to schedule, schedule workloads? How long does it take between when you schedule, you know, between somebody, when somebody tries to execute a a deployment and and when it actually occurs. And you're going to want to dig into that from, again, from, I I probably sound like a bit of a broken record, but you really want to look at it from what you're, from, from the experiences that your internal customers are having. And those are the folks that are deploying their apps. There's all kinds of ways to access those metrics. I mean, it might be, again, via the, there's a number of APIs on the control plane. The kubelets themselves offer some some APIs as well. Digging into logs is helpful as well. But you're going to want to look again at how how successful are you at offering your customer, the the, the developer trying to deploy an application on Kubernetes at, at meeting their SLAs you have with them. What about etcd? So etcd is the tool that is managing the consensus of the state of your cluster. And if etcd was having some kind of issue, that would be problematic for your cluster. But do I need to do I need to monitor that, or can I just trust etcd? So I mean, I think like all things, you wanna you definitely want to monitor that uh, etcd. Not having that leaves you in sort of a in a state that's not ideal. Uh, I mean, the cluster won't itself won't fail, but you're going to be in a spot where you know you might not be able to to schedule or or, or make changes there. You know, I think like all all the components that underlie Kubernetes, etcd is something that you're going to want to you know want to keep an eye on, and we we offer a way to integrate with etcd and, and pull all the metrics from there. I think other thing to keep in mind is that a lot of folks that are running etcd often may run it off cluster and separate from their Kubernetes infrastructure. And if they're doing that, then you're you're likely not benefiting from the scheduling and sort of guarantees that Kubernetes might offer you for that etcd cluster. Kubernetes has a base monitoring platform called Heapster. And Heapster aggregates monitoring and event data. It runs in its own pod, and it's communicating with the nodes across the cluster by querying the kubelets on those nodes. Can you talk about what Heapster does and and why it exists in a Kubernetes cluster? Sure. So, uh, I mean, Heapster is is one of the is sort of the original metrics aggregation and, and, and monitoring tool that came with Kubernetes by default. You know, the, the frequency of collection is user configurable. I think it sets about a default by by a minute, but you know, you can get it to down into the in, into the high seconds level range. It tend, folks tend to use it these in, in, in the past have used it because uh, it was there by default. But there was a lot of th- these days it's it's sort of being it's in the process of being deprecated, to my understanding from the instrumentation sig. Folks are starting to focus more on a uh, on some of the new metrics APIs. Heapster, when when it was there, you know, at, at the moment supports a number of different syncs or backends where it where it flushes those metrics too. And so that might be, you know, there, there's there's ones like StatsD, there's Influx, there's Google, you know, the Google Stackdriver, and a bunch of other vendor solutions. 
And so there was there was a lot of challenges with you know keeping up with those implementations and the differences between how those different syncs interacted and, and stored stored and propagated the data. You know the the community has sort of moved into a different direction these days. Um, that being said, you you know it's still in the past it was useful for things like digging into like how to do auto scaling and other other things that required metrics within Kubernetes itself. That term SIG that is special interest group. So you mentioned that. There is a instrumentation special interest group. What is this? This is a group where they discuss the different the state of monitoring and logging and instrumentation around Kubernetes. Yeah, Kubernetes is um, has a SIG for pretty much everything. So if there's more than two people in the world that want to do a thing, there's likely a SIG for it. It's maybe a little bit of an exaggeration, but the instrumentation SIG is where all the different all the different all the different monitoring vendors as well as the you know core kubernetes developers that work on the metric subsystems you know get together on a regular basis to chat about how how to collect and and about what those APIs should look like what the future of things like heapster looks like and sort of the roadmap for monitoring and metrics within the world of kubernetes this is one thing i find interesting about the kubernetes community is that it is there are all these commercial interests you know you go to a kubecon and there are so many vendors there it, it does make me wonder, what's the diplomacy like there? Or is there a very shared sensibility to what what APIs Kubernetes should offer that make it easy for any kind of instrumentation company, vendor, to build on top of Kubernetes? Yeah, it's um, surprisingly cordial. I mean, I think it's... And so far, it feels better. I mean, it feels better than, than what I saw in, in the world of OpenStack, maybe, you know, five, five plus years ago, where in, in the world of OpenStack, it felt like every vendor would show up and, you know, you, they would, there would be some implementation that was, they'd be looking to create an API or a service that represented their technology solution with, with you know, with, in, in a way that made it work with OpenStack. And there was, it was always interesting to see what, what actually got accepted there and what moved in. And in the world of Kubernetes, it feels like there's better abstraction layers. I don't, want to sound that I guess that maybe that sounds a little negative on on the on the OpenStack side but it feels like the the organ, like the the SIGs have done a better job of ensuring that we we come together and work towards a common standard that then we all maybe then we all implement and so right now that you can see that instrumentation sig where there's uh, there's been a, a bunch of new metrics apis before it there, there's sorry there's been development of a new metrics api as that metrics api matured you saw a number of vendors come forward with you know sort of implementations of their own for how to consume or send metrics you know via it. yeah so those metrics on a cluster do they get stored automatically or does it come down to the the vendor choice or the a metrics implementation choice to decide how to store metrics, how long you want to keep them around for, how they can be queried. Is that the, the job of this kind of tooling that people plug into their Kubernetes cluster? So, I mean, there's, of course, there's the, the, you know, the heapster bit that we were talking about earlier. And yeah, that was, I mean, by default, it used InfluxDB, although there was a bunch of different other choices you could make. This, the, a lot of the details, though, that you mentioned around, you know, how things are stored and how long you're going to keep around, keep them around for and at what granularity and are you going to roll them up or not roll them up? And, you know, how do you, you know, how do you alert on them? What do you do with them? That's, that's sort of all belongs to, in the world of, of that of that monitoring tooling and the vendors that consume from those APIs. So where do the logs from a Kubernetes pod get written to? So it's interesting. Kubernetes doesn't really have a, a centralized logging so you know offering, right? They get when container container users are often will generally log to standard error or standard out 
uh, from their applications, whether that's that's a that's a general pattern within the world of Docker as as well. And so those there's you can what what folks tend to do is run either a sidecar that will monitor that standard error standard out. And, and grab that, or they run a daemon set, which will ensure that they're you know they've got a container on each host collecting all the logs, but they're not they're not really centralized in any sort of a way within the, in the world of Kubernetes. So describe that sidecar pattern. How do people use the sidecar pattern for logging in Kubernetes? In Kubernetes, you have a, the concept of a of a pod, which is a bunch of you know which you know is one or more containers that that are going to be deployed together. What the sidecar pattern is is taking a you know utility whether it be a, a monitoring or a logging, you know, a log collection agent, and you're just you're you're including it in that in that pod alongside your application workloads. There are other reasons you might want to include multiple containers in a pod. Maybe there's that, that are actually more relevant to your application in terms of you know having multiple pieces that are that are actually working together to serve, you know, serve the traffic that that container may need to, or the work that that container may need to do. But in the case of uh, of monitoring or metrics, you're just going to have um, or or logs. You're you're going to have that. Your, your collection agent alongside your your application and picking up picking up those logs and sending them off to your you know whether it's your internal log store with something like elk or if it's your you know a hosted provider like datadog you're sort of looking to have a separation of concerns within your application and that those sidecars are taking care of it yeah and uh, I think there's also a Another popular stack, what is it, the F stack or something? That we, like, we did a show about FluentD <laughs> yeah. a while back. What, what's a, what is FluentD? What's the role that FluentD plays in a logging pipeline? I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm by, I'm by no means um, a, FluentD, a FluentD expert, but you know, FluentD is, is, tends, seems to be quite popular in the, in, the world of, in the world of Kubernetes. It, it is one way in which you can you sort of route your logs to, to the various solutions you may, you may want. It's a new, it has ended up in the CNCF as well alongside Kubernetes and some of the other, other tools. But it's, you know, it's, a, it's a data collector that you can use to you know, route, your, route your logs to wherever you may want them. Uh, FluentD is, is one, of the, one of the ingest solutions that Datadog would support, for example, for our own, our own logging pipeline and product. When we're talking about these kind of solutions, like I do want to talk about Datadog because you're a company that makes monitoring tools. What do you have to build to support Kubernetes users? So of course we need to integrate with with all the all the different pieces that make up a Kubernetes you know a Kubernetes cluster whether it's uh, whether it's Kubernetes itself and, and and collecting metrics from you know from from a little cluster at a cluster level you know that, whether that be uh, scheduling events or or logs from your log logs from your masters in the various API servers could be you know we want to make sure that we monitor things like all your ingress controllers and your your etcd and all of the other tools that kind of kind of come together to make up a, a functioning cluster for you. At the same time, though, often we find that folks are often focused too much on that. We we do we do build out integrations for all those things. We've supported them since since before Kubernetes 1.0. But the place where I think Datadog, where Datadog spends a lot of our time is on making it easy for application developers to monitor their applications on top of Kubernetes. So you know whether that's be traces from your actual from your applications in the, in the open tracing sense and making sure that you're able to you know see where where your requests are spending their time and how they're crossing service boundaries and host boundaries, or logs in terms of making sure that we can get elect, collect all your application logs and those cluster logs and make sure that we've kind of document we made, made, made easy to deploy patterns for that and then finally uh, with things like auto discovery we want to make sure that we can make it easy for you to 
automatically detect containers as they're spinning up and down and see, you know, and monitor them for what's inside them, not just sort of like, oh, here's another Docker container, here's CPU or memory or what have you, but but really being able to monitor the, the things that are inside those containers. Most recently, one of the things that we've added, we added late last year, was a live process view and a live container view in, in the Datadog product. So if you think about things like CTOP, which lets you see, you know, container stats across your hosts or, or HTOP or, or TOP um, that's letting you focus on processes, we realized that, you know, folks have all of these all of these metrics at their disposal for the health of their cluster. Uh, and then they still, you know, occasionally still find, still catching people SSHing places or, or, or running, you know, or running to their kube control commands to get data from their cluster. And so we realized that, that a lot of that really had to do with, with data recency and wanting to have like a real-time index of all of, your, all of your data. So rather than having you run CTOP across all your different hosts, what we built was a centralized way for you to be able to look at it across the, the Datadog product and then be able to dive into you know, each of those containers and even see what processes are running inside them and the resources that they're using. So those are some of the examples of the things that, that, that we built to make Kubernetes monitoring interesting and useful and, uh, you know, real time. So I know that at least one model of deploying Kubernetes monitoring is through the daemon set, which a daemon set makes a particular pod run on every node in the cluster. Is the daemon set the approach that you take for when you have users that want to deploy monitoring across an entire Kubernetes cluster? Is that what they're doing when they deploy Datadog, for example, they're deploying a, da- a daemon set? Yeah, that's sort of the, the get up and running real quick model. And that's the one we, we generally recommend is you deploy a daemon set on your cluster and automatically you're now monitoring the whole the overall cluster as well as have the ability to monitor the, the applications running it, that, that are being scheduled on top of it. So the daemon set's quite useful useful for monitoring any any systems management tools. So, But that's, that's the way we approach monitoring metrics, you know, as m- monitoring from a metrics logs or tracing perspective by default. It's the, it's the recommended path. But in some cases, you know, customers may not have... They may not be the cluster administrator. They may be running in a in a hosted environment where they, are, they you know, they don't have the ability to run a, a daemon set, right? If it's a multi-tenant environment, or you know, there may be, you know, what have you. And so, in those situations, we, you know, the sidecar approach is, is definitely something we can we can support as well. When you're building a monitoring product, do you want to enable people to scale their to auto scale their cluster? in response to things that are detected in the monitoring data that is being created within within the Datadog product, for example? Or do you want to just make a tool for observing and, you know, somebody that's on, that's on call can just look at and, uh, like, do you want the cluster to be able to respond to data that is generated by that monitoring product? I think you want the option for that. So, you know, in general, Datadog is... Uh you know, likes to be a benevolent observer, right? We want to be able to to watch what's happening in your environment, help you better understand it, and not necessarily take particular actions on your behalf. That being said, we have a lot of a number of customers that will do things like whether it be pipe our data back into auto scaling, uh, back into auto scaling groups at the various you know at the various cloud providers to get more to get more control there based on application metrics or or service metrics, uh, and that's that's a that's a popular pattern. Similarly, in in the world of Kubernetes, you have folks that are doing uh, you know pod auto scaling where they want to scale up and, and down the number of pods based on workloads and schedule more resources there, and so you definitely want to be able to inject those metrics back into the cluster in some way. That's that's something that, that the Datadog team is working on. So Datadog is a hosted service in contrast to people who self-manage their own monitoring tool chains, whether it's open source or not. 
how important is the the hosted service aspect of it? Are because like you know you talk to other people who are building hosted services. Oftentimes, it's useful to have some auto scaling component or the uptime guarantees, for example. How does the usage of a provider, a hosted provider, compare to self-managed or open source monitoring solutions? So I'm a, I'm a big you know big fan of open source. Been been involved in the open source community for most of my my career, and so I think it's lovely to see all the you know that we're finally getting some attention on on open source tooling in our industry uh, around monitoring and, and and systems management. There was a sort of a a bit of a dark ages there for a little bit a few years back, but it's it's good to see that things are coming together again. That being said, you know much like any other open source versus hosted or proprietary solution, really what you're making is a decision there based on core competencies for your organization, time available, what, whether or not you want some of the support options that are available. Of course, there's lots of organizations that sell support on those open source solutions. I think the the piece around outsourcing a lot of this problem to somebody else whose who's challenge that is, is, is important and something to keep in mind, right? I used to run monitoring systems uh, myself internally at, at various organizations when, when I was wearing my operations hat. And to do it well, it's, it's, a not, it's not a trivial amount of time. And that's before you even get to the point of figuring out what you wanted to monitor. It's just, you know, just thinking about how you, you know, the, the time series data store in which you keep all of these things. How are you going to scale that out? How are you going to keep it online? How are you going to, how are you going to monitor it not to, to sort of, I guess that's a bit of a catch 22, but you want to do all the things, but you know, you want to, it's, there's, there's a lot of effort that goes into making that, making those monitoring systems highly available and, and useful to the end users in your organization. And that's, that's where vendors like Datadog come in and we help, we help make that much, a much easier experience for you and a much more integrated experience across, across the different tool sets that you have, whether it be, again, tracing metrics and logs, being able to switch, switch between them and, and sort of pivot on a log and see the metrics that are associated with it or, or vice versa. That's, that's quite important and quite helpful to to, to sort of reducing your your time to addressing issues to, to addressing issues if you're having an incident or identifying issues before your customers have noticed it, and so that's I think that's where hosted providers like Datadog can can really really help reduce your workload and, and let you go back to focusing on on building your own applications and building the things that make your company a success. And what's on the roadmap for Kubernetes support? What are you working on at Datadog? Right now, we've been um, let's see, let's a couple of things we've been working on. We've got a we've got we've got some new some new features we'll be announcing at at KubeCon here in a, in a couple of weeks around uh, visualizing your containers. I definitely keep an eye out for those. We're continuing to build uh, improve our improve our support for things like supporting the Prometheus format, which is which will be probably by the time this episode is out that'll have been <laughs> that'll have been released. And then finally, we talked a little bit about horizontal pod auto scaling and the idea of wanting to bring your metrics back into your cluster operations. And that's that's also something that you'll you'll see coming out here fairly soon from Datadoc. So what do you think about these newer ways of managing resources? Like it's obviously serverless. And then there's these standalone container instances like the Azure container instances or the AWS Fargate instances. Have you looked much at these different solutions for managing resources? Yeah, we got to spend a lot of time with the AWS team on, on Fargate as that was as that was getting ready to roll out. Uh, we were one of their launch partners. So got to spend spend a bit of time with that. ACI is a similar, you know, has a similar approach and something that we're we're playing with quite a bit as well. It's interesting, right? When we we're, we were already saying for a while now that you know the host is not what folks want to focus on in terms of their monitoring systems. You wanted to focus on you wanted to focus on the services that, that run on top of them. This just helps us take it to the you know to let, 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 helps us drive that point home. 
you know, that's that, that's another great place where that sidecar approach really falls in that we were talking about earlier, right? Is, you know, how do you monitor? There's no there's no host on which to run our agent. There's no host on which to run a, a log, you know, something that does log collection. So you want to drop those in, in inside your tasks. I think these are all these are all great solutions that are helping folks focus on, again, focus on their applications and innovate more quickly as they're trying to deploy, you know, deploy the services that their businesses are either depend on or that their customers depend on. So more and more abstractions like this is, is, is great. And the the difference between using a cloud provider product versus using a non-cloud provider vendor-specific product, that's a choice that a lot of people are are making decisions between. For example, like I know AWS has their own suite of monitoring tools, and Datadog has their own suite of monitoring tools. How do you talk to people about, like potential customers, about the differences between like choosing, you know, okay, you're already on AWS, should, you know, they're thinking maybe we should just go with the AWS monitoring tools. How do you convince them to go in a different direction? So I think the the features and the functionality that we offer really end up speaking for themselves, as well as the ability to look across across cloud providers. Most of the cloud providers, you know, AWS included, have you know, they have a fairly coarse granularity at which they store their metrics. They they rolled up those metrics over time quite aggressively. So that, you know, after days or weeks, you're no longer able to say what exactly happened at a given point in time. Instead, you're looking at, you know, an average of what happened over the course of an hour or a five minute window, which is, mm. you know. So it's, like, so it's like garbage collection, like a log garbage collection. Uh, I mean, it's it's sort of like what you had in RRD when we were doing like Cacti or, or, or any of the other, you know, monitoring tooling back in the day, right? It's a way to... It's a way to reduce. It's a, it's a way to reduce costs. It's a way to improve performance as you're querying the data and looking at it over time. Datadog doesn't do that. We keep all of the data for 15 months at, at full granularity. So if you you know if you sent us a metric now, and we come back, you know we come back next year this same time, you'll still have that and you'll be able to say like how did that that how did that software engineering daily you know episode impact the traffic on my website? I can tell you a year you know I I, I can tell you you know looking at that year over year or month over month right. That's important. You know also our, you know we have deep integrations. With a bunch of with all the different cloud providers it's, so it's not just you know what's on your what's on your server we can also we're also pulling metrics from your storage providers and from like like s3 or azure blob storage or you know similar services at google and, and other cloud providers so the, the ability to kind of look at that super deeply connect it with your application data from our integrations from the agent right most of those cloud providers are really focused on you know those underlying resource metrics they the, their monitoring tools are really focused on telling you are they providing you with the resources that you know that were scheduled for you and are you using them right? Whereas you know Datadog's focused on helping you monitor the 360 degree picture for your environment. So we want to help you monitor that uh, that application server or that data store or that web server that's sitting on top of your instances. And so when we have a so the Datadog product uh, helps you know is going to is going to help you look across all of those things and then as well as cross cloud provider. And that's usually you know by the end of that. By the end of that conversation, people tend to realize that we're, we're the right solution for them. All right. Well, just to close off, I, I know you've been looking at the usage data of people who are working with Kubernetes. And obviously, Datadog has access to lots of anonymized data about how how people are operating their clusters. What kinds of surprising trends are you seeing involving Kubernetes? So, I mean, one thing we saw, one of the trends that we have, we have a whole study up on our, on the website and you know, maybe, maybe something we can link to from the link to from, from the show notes, but 
things like the number, the, the frequency at which uh, which containers churn between Kubernetes and, and ECS. We found that Kubernetes users tend to have much shorter lifetimes on their workloads than 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 folks at on ECS do. Some other surprising things we've had, you know, the number of people running data stores inside containers, uh, whether it's on Kubernetes or not on Kubernetes, is, is much higher than we than we were expecting. So like in the top 10 containers, you have thing, top 10 technologies people are monitoring. We have things like Elasticsearch and Redis and and, and MySQL, right? These are MongoDB. Like these are all things that I did not expect to see, you know, did not expect to see as we were digging into the data for, for, for containers early on or even later with, with Kubernetes. So stateful services are you know, definitely becoming a, a more popular thing to run there. I've just been surprised by by how quickly people are diving into it. And it surprises you because it's bold to put your central data store of record on Kubernetes? To be honest, I don't it's hard for me to tell you what, what people are doing in there. I can tell you what you know what, what technologies they're running, right? But it's hard for me to say is it is that the master is their master database sitting inside, you know, on top of Kubernetes. I think it's just people tend to to think about or- about containers and orchestrated workloads as a place to put their stateless services. And so as we dive into, as, as we see people running stateful services there, it's just, I, at, at least at first, it was surprising. And every time we run the report, I'm just kind of wondering who's going to come out in the lead in terms of the technology we see there. So, so that's been... Like Nginx, when, when, when Nginx came in number one, I was not surprised at all, right? Like that's... It's it's, <laughs> right. it's definitely like the web server of choice. It seems within the world of uh, within the world of containers. When I saw you know when I saw Elasticsearch coming in number two on Kubernetes, I was like, that's I'm a little surprised by that, but okay. As we started to get into things like Postgres and MySQL and MongoDB, like, I was also a little you know surprised. But this, these days, it's just again not to make it a it's not a popularity contest, but it's just interesting to see what comes out on top, if only to see how the patterns and how people are using containers and orchestrators are changing. Well, you know, other things, you know, other stats I could talk about. I think it's been interesting to see how deployment patterns and best practices have emerged on top of, you know, with containers and, and with orchestrators, right? I think if we if we went back to the early days of any programming language of your choice, let's say we'll, we'll go with Ruby and you'd, you had people, you know, playing with dependencies and, and their gem files. Uh, they probably started off there also not pinning to particular versions. And when things blew up, starting to build other tools that made that, you know, starting to build other tools or starting to lock that down in their environments. Uh, I think we're seeing a similar, similar trend in the world of Kubernetes. We see something like 70 Something like eighty percent, seventy-five to eighty percent of our customers are are really just are pulling tons of images that have the latest tag on them. Where it's just like whatever, whatever Kubernetes schedule. What, every time Kubernetes spins up a pod, it's going to pull for you know what the, whatever the latest container is and, and pull that down. That's you know maybe maybe a little, living a little dangerously. I think only about ten percent of our customers. Last time we ran the study, were were looking at just you know we're we're pinning their container images to like specific versions. It'd be interesting to see how that how that progresses over time and if folks start to start to get burned by that and locked down to specific versions. But yeah, I'm looking forward to looking forward to digging into more stats. So if any of the listeners have specific things, there's specific questions around Kubernetes you're interested in, just drop me a tweet. I'd love to love to dig into them in our next study. And we'll certainly try to cover the evolving notion of stateful applications on Kubernetes. Well, Elon, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been really great talking to you. Thanks. Good. Thanks for having me on and it's been fun. Wow. 